0: And with me. We're going to start this morning reading in verse 13, a very well-known passage of Scripture, the one that we have visited from time to time. But Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, the Bible says this, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and other, others Jeremias, or one of the prophets. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us here to your house this morning, and we thank you for your word and for the power that it has to change who we are and how we think. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have the ability and the desire to transform our lives so that we are living lives that are fully pleasing unto yourself and then as a byproduct satisfying unto us. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning to walk in your ways. I pray that you would draw the lost to yourself through this preaching of your word. That there may be someone here this morning that would recognize their need of a savior and would come and be born again fully trusting in you and you alone for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, I want to pray for your people as well. You know the battles that are going on. You know the struggles. You know the ups and the downs. You know the discouragement that many are facing as they're here this morning and the apathy that is on many hearts. Lord, you know the distractions that so easily come into our lives, and so we commit this service to you, and we ask only that you would speak to us, that we would have ready and receptive hearts to receive that which you've prepared for us, That we would go forth from here as conquerors, and yea, more than conquerors, through Jesus Christ who loved us. As your vessel this morning, I ask you, Father, to forgive me of sin. I ask you to fill me with the power of your Spirit. I ask you for wisdom, that I may communicate your words uh, in an effective manner this morning, and that your people would respond. And I ask that you would be glorified in all that we say and do, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, folks. You can be seated. You ever wonder why we come to church? Let's be seriously honest for just a moment. Sometimes we get into the routine and we go to church however often we go, whether it be on Sunday mornings only or whether we go the three times during the week. But seriously, what's the reason for coming together once or even three times a week? Doesn't that preacher know that we're busy people? Don't we understand that there are other things going on in life and that sometimes we make church just kind of a, an interlude? It's, it's something that we do to fill up an hour or two on a Sunday morning, but it's really not about the, cer- the purpose or the, or the function of our lives. In our day, there's a rising tide, at least in some sectors of society, to abandon what's so affectionately called organized religion and abandon it altogether. That, by the way, is not really new. People have been saying forever, I can worship God as well in the woods as in the church. I'll quickly say an answer to that one. Theoretically, you can, but you won't. And that, by the way, is a proven fact. (laughs) You don't worship God as well in the woods as you do at church. There are reasons that Jesus established his local New Testament church. It wasn't just a whim on his part. Hey, disciples, I know what let's do. Let's make a club and charge dues and make people feel guilty if they don't join it and call it a church. (laughs) That's not what Jesus said, is it? Not by any means or stretch of the imagination. While that is what some churches have degraded into, that wasn't the plan or the intent of our Savior. Jesus never did anything just because. He always has a reason. If he established the institution or the organism of the church, he did so for a reason. Even in our church, it's awfully easy to come on Sunday mornings, sing a few songs, listen to some special music, pray a few prayers, endure a sermon, so that we can go out and feel like we've done our Christian duty for the week. Perhaps that's why we get discouraged and distracted, yes, and even bored, with what's supposed to be our worship and service of the Lord. May I tell you this morning that there is much more to church than that. I'd like to take a few weeks on Sunday morning, to talk to you about what we're really supposed to be about. It's my prayer that we'll see the areas that are weak and strengthen them, and that we'll become fully the church that Jesus intended us to be, and that we'll be much more effective in growth and in fruit-bearing. Today, and perhaps next week, I want to put to you a simple question. That question is, what's the church to do? What is the church to do? Can we just pick something and we enjoy and do that? I know a lot of people that shop around they find something they like and that's where they go. But is that really what it's all about? Are we here to entertain the saints and to pacify the lost? Is there a reason to be here or are we just filling time to quiet a guilty conscience or perhaps just because that's what we've always done? I pray that by the time we finish this morning, we'll all realize what a wonderful and miraculous thing God has called us to be a part of, and that we'll be able to determine where God is going and get on board and go along with him. For today, consider with me from Matthew chapter 16, what's a church to do? The first thing that we're going to be talking about, and quite frankly this is probably the only thing that we'll be talking about today, I believe from the passage that we've read, if we're going to try to make a list of the things that the church is supposed to do, the foremost thing that we are supposed to do is to be the body of Jesus Christ. You understand that Jesus lived here on this earth, and while he was here on this earth, he inhabited a human body, a body that was born of the virgin, a body that was made of a woman, the Bible says. And God came and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm so thankful that he did. But as we get into our context this morning in Matthew chapter 16, look with me, if you would please, in verse 15. The Bible says, He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. This particular passage is a commendation of Peter. Later on, we see our Lord Jesus Christ actually commending him for what he has said. We see the beginning of that here in verse 17, and then based on that, he's going to make the statement that he makes in verse number 18. But I want you to recognize the fact that the commendation of Peter came only after his confession of Jesus' identity. That is, after he recognized who Jesus is and what Jesus actually came to do. Jesus asked him the question, whom say men that I am? And the disciples began to respond, well, some think that you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And some think that you're Jeremiah the prophet or that prophet that should come. Or maybe you're Moses and all these different considerations and speculations on the part of the people about who this this strange rabbi from Galilee was. But Jesus then put it to them, his disciples, those whom he had called out by his name, and said, Whom say ye that I am? And only Peter of the twelve said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I don't necessarily believe that that's because the other disciples didn't know who he was, we just understand the character and the nature of Peter. Peter I have, took it upon himself sometimes to be the spokesman for the group, and sometimes he got it right, and sometimes he got it wrong. This happened to be one of the times that he got it right, and God, the Lord Jesus Christ tells him that he did so by the direct revelation of God himself. I want to notice, if you will, for just a moment, who did Peter say that Jesus is? He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what does that mean? The Christ, by the way, is a title that is, uh, of course, the Greek word is the word Christos. It is uh, actually a translation of the Hebrew word Messias or Messiah. And it means the anointed one or the one whom God had promised. All through the Old Testament, God had been promising that he would send one that would be the redeemer of his people, that, he would, ta- that would take away the sins of the nation, that would deliver Israel. And all of those promises were wrapped around one who was the anointed seed of God. So the title was one that applied only to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the king. He was the deliverer. He was the savior. By saying this, Peter was recognizing that in Jesus Christ are fulfilled all of the promises that have been made by God to Israel and and through them, by the way, to us. Going back into the Old Testament, we have promises such as what is given to us in Micah chapter 5. Uh, it's a sad thing to me that usually the only, re- the only time we read Micah 5 and verse 2 is because it's Christmas time, right? But you understand that Micah 5, 2 is in the Bible all year. <laughs> it's always there, and it always has significance and relevance to us. But Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, uh, the Bible says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of these shall come forth unto me one that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now we're going to come back to Micah 5.2 in just a moment and point out to you, as we will hear in passing, that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. But in recognizing him, Peter recognized that in him, the promise of God, that one that was to come, the one who would be uh, the ruler over Israel, the one whose goings forth had been from everlasting. When When Peter said, Thou art the Christ, this is what he's talking about. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the Bible says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and then notice the last part of the verse, the promises that are given regarding this son. Uh, The government shall be upon his shoulder. By the way, that hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for that. The day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign literally on this earth in all the affairs of man. In the meantime, he reigns in some of our hearts, right? He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the sovereign God of the universe, but he's not been yet recognized as such by mankind. But he says that he is, uh, the government would be upon his shoulder. His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Christ. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Anointed One. And so when Peter said, Thou art that one, thou art the Christ, thou art the one whom God would send, this is who he's talking about. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our Righteousness. Obviously, we could spend the morning going through the Old Testament talking about all the prophecies of this one whom God had promised. But when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, this is what he's saying. You're him. You're the one we've been expecting. You're the one we've been waiting on. You are the anointed one of God. But he also added to that a common title that's almost always attached to the title of Christ or the Messiah of God, and that is the Son of the living God. Who who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. It was known by all Judaism that Messiah would be the Son of God. The titles, by the way, as we mentioned, are often used interchangeably or in connection one with the other. In John chapter 6 and verse 69, for example, we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 11, verse 47, then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we for this man do with many miracles? That's not the one I was looking for. But anyway, (laughs) nonetheless, uh, uh, what I was looking for was when uh, Martha recognized Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, John chapter 20, verse 31, see if I get this one right. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. Scripturally, the Son of God is equal with God and is himself God. By the way, you understand that when Jesus finally was put to death, when he was executed by the Romans at the behest of the Jews, the crime for which he was executed was the crime of blasphemy, and the reason he was executed for blasphemy was was because he said that he was the Son of God. And by saying so, he made himself equal with God. Now i want to show you what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. The Bible says, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. And catch this last phrase in verse 2. By whom also he made the worlds. Verse 3, Who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his mouth. Now Jesus is the creator. He is also the sustainer of all things. When he had by himself purged our I love this, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he is the redeemer. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on a high, being made so much better than the angels. And he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me. Son, I think as we read Hebrews, the first chapter, there's no doubt that the Son of God is God come in the flesh. He can be no other. He is all of those things that only God is. And yet it applies to the Son. John chapter 5 and verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They knew what he was doing. They knew what he was saying. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't a, a thing of a thief for Jesus to be equal with God. Now listen, if you or I pretend to be equal with God, that's thievery. We're trying to steal the glory that belongs only to him. But when Jesus said that he is equal with God, it wasn't theft, it wasn't robbery, because that's who he is. He is God come in the flesh. So Peter's confession was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I want you to understand that when we're talking about being the body, we're talking about not only the confession that Jesus made regarding Jesus' identity, but his confession itself became the identifier of of the church that Jesus would establish. Matthew chapter 16, we have the prophetic establishment of the, of, the, of the local New Testament church. By the time you get to Matthew 18, we're already getting rules for how things are to be carried out in the worship of that local New Testament church. But Peter's confession became the identifier of the church. The world was then and is now confused about who Jesus is. Going back in our text in, uh, in excuse me Matthew chapter 13 and uh, verses 13, uh, uh, 4 and 5, excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 and 14. There we go. It says, When Jesus came unto the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I am, or that I the son of the man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The world was confused. They knew that this rabbi from Galilee was somebody they, they knew that he had come out of nothing and yet had become well-known throughout all of the land for the good deeds that he was doing amongst the people and for the way that he used and taught the word of God. They knew that he did many miracles and God empowered him, and yet they really couldn't figure out who exactly he was. By the way, let me just remind you from our study in the book of John, the reason they couldn't figure it out is because they didn't want to know. Right? They didn't want to clearly identify that Jesus is who he claimed to be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says this, In whom the wo- God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. There's one thing in this world that you can count on being consistent throughout the ages. And that is the world's confusion about the identity of Jesus Christ. The world, because the world is predisposed to reject who He was and who He is. So I say again, the world was then and still is confused about the identity of Jesus. But God has given to His church, the local New Testament church, the responsibility to declare or reveal who He is. And we do that based on what has been revealed to us. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now you understand that Peter didn't just sit down here and decide with the rest of the disciples, hey, let's make a religion. Right? He didn't just decide that he's going to make, make a list of things to believe and this is going to become the premises of our new faith. No. God told him who Jesus was. Now we understand in dealing with the apostles that they received re- revelation directly from God. God is going to be the one who is going to use them to pen the words of our scripture. But let me just quickly say here that the truths that are revealed directly to Peter and the other apostles and through them to us, we now have in the person, or excuse me, in, in, in the form of the written word of God. We have the Bible. 2 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. The Bible says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. What was John writing? He was writing the things that he had seen and heard, the things that he had witnessed personally, and being in the presence of uh, the Savior Jesus Christ and the things that God had told him. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him, that is of Jesus and of God. And declare unto you that God is light and him is no darkness at all. What I'm trying to tell you is that we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today declare the identity of Christ based on what has been revealed to us. You understand that these truths were revealed directly to Peter. They were revealed directly to the other apostles, and even before them to the apostles. Excuse me, to the prophets in the Old Testament. Second Peter chapter one verse twenty-one: For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. I love that part. People didn't just decide to sit down and write the Bible. God did this. It didn't come by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So they got the word directly from God, and now the revelation of Jesus' person and work comes only through the word of God. That is the full revelation of what God has said to men. Revelation chapter 22 Verses 18 and 19, the Bible says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in the book. A lot of people go to Revelation 22 as uh, evidence that the word of God is complete, and that's the only place that they go. But can I tell you that this is not the only place in Scripture where God tells us not to mess with his word, not to be adding to it. Now, where I'm going with this, folks, I want you to understand, and let me just put it in words of one syllable or less. We don't believe in revelation of God that continues today. We have the full revelation of God, first in his word, And secondarily, in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did while he was here on this earth. So it's done, all right? We don't talk to angels today to get further instruction on how to serve God. God tells us in his word how to do that. So we believe in the Bible. Proverbs 30, verse 6, the Bible says, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So where I'm going with this is to point out to you that a primary function of the church is to speak forth the word of God in order to reveal Jesus to the world. We're supposed to confess or make the confession of Peter, if you will, based on the revelation that God has given us that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. I remind you that this doesn't come through man's wisdom. It doesn't come through man's philosophy or man-made religion. It doesn't come through all the things that we can invent in order to better communicate the truths of His word. We declare His word as it is. First Corinthians chapter one verses 18 through 21, the Bible says, "For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer, that is the arguer, of this world? Have not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Second chapter of the book of Colossians warns us against organized religion in that sense, or that which is man-made. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you, that is to carry you away as spoil in the battle, to captivate you. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, vain deceit, after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. And then, of course, well-known verse in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. God's Holy Spirit spoke his word to men, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's Holy Spirit continues to lead us into all truth so that we can understand the things that God says and so that we can proclaim those things forth into the world. And that's the function of the church is to declare the word of God as it is. To tell the world what God has said. That means the preaching and the teaching of God's word must have priority in the church. That's why we come and endure the sermon on Sunday morning and the other things that we do to try to, 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 try to implant into you and to, and to ingrain into your thinking the very words of God. Acts chapter 6 and verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The Bible says in verse 4, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Later on in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, in verse 35, Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of God with many others also. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writing to a young preacher that was under his tutelage here, and obviously writing under the power of the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says to him, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And in the first chapter of the book of Titus, he says in verse three, but hath in due times manifest his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Somebody says, why is it that we spend so much time talking about the Bible? Why is it that we have a Bible lesson on Sunday morning during Sunday school? By the way, we still do Sunday school here. It's at 9.30, Sunday morning. We invite you to come and be a part of it, all right? But why do we do that? We have a Bible lesson there. We have have a Bible-centered message on Sunday morning. By the way, somebody please knock me on the head if I ever get away from the Scriptures, all right? The only thing that I have to to say to you is what God has said in His Word, the Bible. But why do we spend so much time and emphasis declaring and teaching and preaching that Word Sunday night? What do we do Sunday night? Well, we come together, we study the Bible. What do we do on Wednesday night? Well, we come together, we study the Bible. Somebody says, why is it that we spend so much time doing those kinds of things? Because that's what God has told us we're supposed to be doing. Why are we here? We're here to ingrain the Word of God into the hearts and lives of the people of God so that they can go forth and declare His gospel to the rest of the world. I want to move on from there and point out another interesting observation from uh, this particular passage. We're talking here about being the body. We've talked to you already about Jesus' identity. I've talked to you about Peter's confession. Let me talk to you for just a minute about Peter the pebble. You never, you never knew that that was his nickname, did you? He, uh, his name, by the way, was Simon, which is called Peter. And Peter is Petros. The word Petros is a Greek word that's a diminutive of the word rock, and it actually means a rock or a stone such as a person might pick up or move. So it's a smaller rock, if you will. Later on, if you look at verse 18, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So it's all right, Simon, you are Petras. You are, you are the little rock. But upon this rock, and he uses a different word there, the word that's used there is actually, it's a form of the word, but the word is Petra. And in that sense, it means the bedrock. It means that which cannot be moved. Can I remind you that Jesus Christ himself is the only bedrock. He is the only foundation stone. He is the chief cornerstone, as the scripture calls it. And there is no other rock but him. You cannot take the scriptures out of the entirety or the context of the entirety of the Bible and say, well, this is a different rock. No, the rock upon which the church was built was Jesus himself. Jesus didn't build his church on a pebble. He built it on the bedrock, which he himself is. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118 and verse 22 is actually the passage that's being cited here, where the Bible says the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner fourth chapter of the book of acts is putting this into practice this is the stone which was set of naught at naught of you builders peter and john preaching to the rebellious leaders of the jews he said you builders have set it not the stone which is jesus which has now become the headstone of the corner isaiah 28 and verse 16 therefore thus saith the lord god behold i lay in zion for a foundation a stone a tried stone a precious cornerstone a sure foundation this isn't a pebble he's talking about, folks. This is the rock that is Jesus Christ. And he that believeth shall, on him excuse me, shall not make haste. And then the Bible says in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I, lie, I lay in Zion as a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him, that is Jesus, shall not be confounded. I want to point out to you in First Peter chapter 2, guess what? This was written by a fellow named Peter. Jesus, or Peter recognized that the rock was not Peter, but Jesus. And he's pointing it out to those that are reading his epistle here in 1 Peter. He didn't think he was the stone. Only Jesus is the stone. Now later, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, after the earthly body that he inhabited for 33 and a half years approximately while he was here on this earth, after it had been crucified and buried and risen again, then the body that Jesus occupied ascended up into heaven, and the Bible says that there he ever liveth to make intercession for us. You want to know where the body, the physical body of Jesus is? It's in heaven right now. It's seated at the right hand of the Father on high, and he's waiting for the day that he will come back and catch us away to be with him. But in the meantime, he's left a body. And that is the body that we call the local New Testament church. The institution that Jesus established would come to be called uh, his body. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, for the husband uh, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So Jesus is the Savior of the body. Now, we understand that the body is the physical representation. He is the manif- It is the manifestation of the person. Let me get to the chase here. We're talking about responsibility. What's a church to do? A church is to be the body in that we are to look like Jesus. We're to be easily identified as being Him, being His person here on this earth, being the organism through which He does His work. As the body, we we should look like Jesus in everything that we think and say and do. That includes what we do here when we are congregated together and what we do as we go forth from this place. May I remind you that what we are, the world attributes to Jesus And so if you go out into the world and act like a nut, the whole world thinks Jesus is nuts. I'm just being blunt, folks. This is the reality. We go out and act like the devil, the whole world thinks that Jesus is the devil. May I remind you that he is not. That he's redeemed us unto himself and he's called out a glorious church that he might present it to himself without spot and wrinkle. We're supposed to look like Him. We're supposed to act like Him. We're supposed to have His attitudes. We're supposed to say His words. The body is the part of the person that interacts with the world around it. It's the part of us that does the work. You know what? I firmly believe in the spiritual part of man, and we'll be talking about that as the time goes on. I believe in the soul of man. But if I want to get any work done, guess what has to do it? The body. Right? Have to put the hands to the plow. Doing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is what we are supposed to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writing to the Thessalonian church says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus the church, to the, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. Now, this is specifically what he's praying about. Verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. I believe biblically that any work that is done for the Lord should be done through the auspices of his body. That is the church. If we're going to go soul winning, we need to go as representatives of his body. If we're going to go out and feed the poor, then we ought to do that as representatives of his body. If we're going to go out and do some kind of, of social involvement, or if we're going to go out and do some kind of uh, something else to get the word of, God, of the gospel out, we need to do it as his body. Sometimes we partner with other organizations and organisms so that we more effectively might do what we're called to do. But I want you to understand the responsibility to do the Lord's work is ours. The body is that which gives the first impression of the person. When we meet someone for the very first time, our first impression is the body. That's why the people that know these things tell you, tell you that you ought to comb your hair and wash your face, you know, take a shower, use some tussie. Look good, as best as you can. Because as you go at the out, the man looketh on the outward appearance, right? And so the body is the first impression that we make. Now, later on, by the way, getting to know the person, the, actual, uh, the interaction becomes more of a soul level. We begin to know the person's intellect and his emotion, his will. We begin to know what we call the personality. That's the soul of the person. But the first time you meet, it's the body. It's like, man, you know, that person is one of the ugliest people I ever met. Man, he's sure got a mean look on his face or those kinds of things. Now, what I'm trying to do is relate this to the church. We are, are the body of Jesus Christ. And so in speaking and moving and serving, we are to do all of this so that the world looking on from outside and not fully understanding who we are, what we're called to, would understand who Jesus is. That we look like him, that we represent him. The body is that which speaks, it is that which moves, it is that which serves. This takes place both within and without the four walls of the church building. We are the body of Christ. Next time, if God is willing, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about how the body interacts with itself. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 16, the Bible says, From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let me just say this in closing this morning. There are no unimportant people in the church. There is no member of the body that is insignificant. The reason that God has placed you here is because you have something. You have a gift. You have a talent. You have a calling. You have some kind of service that you can do that the church needs, the rest of us need. And vice versa, you have something that you can only get from God's people that he has placed you among. And so we're to exhort one another, we're to edify one another, we're to strengthen one another. But that's going to be the the subject for another message. For, For our purposes this morning, what we're talking about is being the body of Jesus Christ. What's a church to do? A church is to be the body. Well, what does that mean? It means that we are uh, to confess or recognize who Jesus is. It means that we are to confess him openly and publicly to the world, recognizing our identity in him. It means that we are to, uh, to, to show him to the world in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, and even in the way that we look. And it means that we are to exalt the Word of God and the name of Jesus Christ in everything that we say and do. So how we do it? Sometimes okay. Sometimes pretty good. But all too often not so well. Because we get distracted by other things. My call to the church this morning is just this. Let's get back to the basics. Let's get back to what we're supposed to be about, who we are supposed to be remembering that we are not our own church, we are his church. And he has called us for his purposes. And my prayer is that we would learn to live as what we are, the servants of the Most High God. Will you stand with me, please, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning. I realize that the message today has not been primarily a gospel message in the sense that I'm calling for lost people to be saved, but I will tell you this. We've talked about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've talked about what Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sins. And the Holy Spirit may use that to convict someone here of their need of a Savior. And if that's the case, as we begin the invitation in just a moment, we'd like to invite you to come and let us show you in the Bible how you can be born again how you can become a child of God, you can be saved. By and large, the message is intended for believers and more specifically to those who are part of this church. You understand, folks, that we can only be as a church what we are as individuals within the church. As any other building, we're only as strong as the weakest part of our structure. And so are you being all that God intended you to be? has the Lord has spoken to you about something this morning that you need to surrender more fully to him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessings on our invitation time. Father, you know what we need. Above all things, we need to be like you. We need to represent you. We need to serve you. Well, that's our calling. That's the purpose for which we were created. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us how we can do that. I pray that there will not be any stubbornness or rebellion in any one of us that would keep us from yielding unto you. I pray that our pride would not keep us from surrendering to you in these areas, but we would do exactly what you want us to do, that we would follow you all the way, and that you would receive the glory in us. Bless our invitation time, Father. May your will be done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.